Well, the Lord's Good Shepherd sermon, which is actually found in verses 1 to 18, although we will be discussing it through verse 21, you can see that 19, 20, and 21 of John chapter 10 are sort of the... um, gives us the results of the shepherd's sermon. And, of course, once again, after hearing it, there is a division among his listeners, the Jews. But it proves to us, really, this sermon proves to us the words, the Lord's words to the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9. What had he spoken to the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9? Well, he had accused them of their willful blindness in verses 39 to 41. In effect, he told them that it would have been better for them if they really really were blind like the blind man had been if they really were blind and ignorant because then they would stand less guilty than they now were because they would not be guilty of the sin of willful unbelief however they claimed to know the truth didn't they they claimed that they could see the light and to they claimed that they were not ignorant of spiritual matters they claimed to be the most spiritual sons of abraham that there were They claim to be the greatest students of Moses, and they claim to be the dedicated servants of the true God. And yet, what did they want to do? What did they have in their hearts to do? They wanted to kill God's very son, the very one who Moses wrote about, and the very one who Abraham rejoiced to see his day. So it was this self-satisfied state of their minds that was the very thing destroying them because they had no cloak for their sin. Because of their pride, because of their self-sufficiency, because they refused to acknowledge their spiritual blindness, their guilt remained. And they continued in their blindness and in their sin. Now, what is interesting to find is that the Lord's next words, and by the way, there is no break. You know, the um, chapter divisions in your Bible are not God-inspired like the rest of the Bible. So he just continues on. In the Good Shepherd Sermon, he was speaking one minute to the Pharisees and then he says, verily, verily, and he goes into the Good Shepherd Sermon. So there's no break there. What's interesting to find is that his words in the beginning of the Good Shepherd Sermon proved the truth of what he had just said to the Pharisees in verses 39 to 41, that they were both deaf deaf to his words... They, could, they heard his words, but they really didn't hear them. They were deaf to his words, his truth, as he had told them also in chapter 8, verse 43. And they were blind to his light. They were blind to his person, as he had told them in 941, because they did not understand him. When he gives this first part of the Good Shepherd sermon, look at verse 6. Just take a sneak preview. I'm going to read the text in a minute. But look at what it tells us in verse 6. It says this parable, and we'll talk about that word parable in a minute, spake Jesus unto them, but what? They understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. So the Good Shepherd sermon actually proves the Lord's words to the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9, and it also leads us right from the account of the former blind man, the former blind beggar who was cast out by the Jews from the fold of Judaism, but was found and led into the flock of God's kingdom by who? By the good shepherd. So it leads us right into that. You see, just as the healing of the blind beggar had been a living illustration of the truth of the Lord's words that preceded that miracle, 
Remember how the Lord had said that he was the source of living water and that he is the light of the world? Well, the healing of the blind beggar um, proved those statements by him, right? That he is the source of living living water because where did he send the man to wash off the, the mess from his eyes? To the pool of Siloam. And what did he give the man? The one thing he wanted more than anything in the world, light. So just as the blind beggar's healing um, was a living illustration of the truths that preceded that miracle, the healing of the blind beggar also was a living illustration of the truths that Jesus would state after that miracle. And what does he tell us in John chapter 10? Two great truths. He says, I am the good shepherd and I am the door. You see, he was the... The blind man's good shepherd. He's the one who led him into the flock of his church. And also he was the door. He is the door of salvation. So it's interesting how that one miracle of the blind man um, tied together so many truths that the Lord had stated. All right, now we're going to be discussing this sermon in two parts. And actually, before I say that, let me let me mention that this very well can, may still be the same eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. I told you when we first started started studying this eighth day, and remember what day is it? It's a Sabbath. It's a Sabbath day. Uh, back in chapter 8, verse 1, when we first started studying this day, I said we're going to be in this day for a long time, and boy, we have been. That day began when the Lord Jesus and his men, you know, after they had slept, they had spent the night on the Mount of Olives, and they got up early in the morning, John 8, 1, and um, it was the Sabbath, and he went straight into Jerusalem, straight to the temple, and what did he do? He began to teach all the people. It said in verse 2 of chapter 8. And he was, while he was teaching the people, remember, some of the religious rulers brought before him an adulterous woman. And we discussed that whole adulterous woman situation, which then led us right into the Lord's Light of the World sermon, where uh, I think we spent four weeks. We not only talked about the light of the world, but we talked about the true emancipation proclamation. And that sermon involved a lot of interruptive debate with the religious rulers, and it ended with them wanting to stone him to death. That was the last verse of chapter 8. And then it also, we, the, the same eighth day also included that entire account of the healing of the born blind beggar and the man's subsequent spiritual journey of enlightenment which was greatly accelerated by the persecution of the Jews during their interrogation of him. And that interrogation ended abruptly when the Jews could no longer tolerate the man's simple, profound, practical, logical, scriptural um, theology. And what did they do to him? They casted, they they, uh, desynagogued him. They were going to use him as a living warning to anyone else who would dare to even think of following this fellow, Jesus. So angered them with his own irrefutable arguments and his wisdom and all of his messianic miracles. I mean, why did he have to go and heal, uh, give sight to a blind beggar, a man who had never seen? Remember how we talked about no one had ever done that before? 
in all of history. No one had ever given a blind person their sight. So they were just, the religious rulers really hated Jesus. And remember when they cast out the blind man, we found out that some of the Pharisees actually followed him. Perhaps to make sure that everyone knew that they were not to affiliate with this blind beggar because he had been desynagogued. And so maybe they went before him and said, you know, he's been, he's been cast out. Don't speak to him. Don't talk to him. And also, what do you think? Why do you think they followed the man? Maybe hoping that he would lead them to Jesus. And they definitely wanted to do away with Jesus. Well, that, the end of that story the, was the wonderful, the wonderful climax of the, the, the account of the born blind beggar. It was that not only did he have his physical sight restored, but even more importantly, he received his spiritual sight. So, and then we go, you know, then he talks, the, after the man gets saved and worships the Lord, then the Lord speaks those words to the Pharisees about how blind they, they are. And, and then he goes right into the um, Good Shepherd sermon. So for all we know, this is that same eighth day. Wow, when does it end? Well, it ends in verse 21. Even the whole, the whole of chapter 10 talks about Jesus' relationship with his sheep as a good shepherd. Yet we know that there is a time span of two and a half months between verse 21 and verse 22. And the reason we know that is because if you'll look at verse 22, it says, And it was at Jerusalem, what? The Feast of the dedication and it was winter. So when we look at verse 22, which won't be for quite some time. We won't get to verse 22 in the rest of John chapter 10 until we get in your books to lesson, I think it's number 103. And the reason for that is because chronologically there's a lot that happens between 21 and 22. And for that information, we'll probably be spending a lot of time in Luke's gospel, I believe. If you look in your books, you'll see we'll be going. You know, since you've started in September this year, we have not been in any other gospel than John, have we? This whole year so far, we have been in John. But when we finish verse 21, we'll be moving back into some of the other gospel accounts. The reason we know there's two and a half months of time span between 20, verse 21 to verse 22 is because in verses 21 and before, we're still at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was in the fall of the year. And then in verse 22, suddenly we find out John is writing about something that happened at the Feast of Dedication, which is also known to us as Hanukkah. When does Hanukkah take place? In winter, in December. Actually, right at the same time that we Christians celebrate Christmas. So there's a time span of two and a half months in between there. All right, now today we were going to consider verses 1 to 10. We were going to look at the scriptural shepherd. You see your outline. And we were going to discuss the saving shepherd. But I only got as far as the scriptural shepherd yesterday. So next week we'll, we'll see how far we get. <laughs> but we will hopefully be discussing at least the saving shepherd and possibly the sacrificial shepherd. And then maybe when we come back in January, we'll be looking at the solitary shepherd and the submission of shepherd but we'll just see what the holy spirit has for us all right let's begin now by looking at the scriptural shepherd verses one to six and i'll read those for you and then we'll discuss them all right it says right after jesus said to the pharisees in eight in nine forty one if ye were blind ye should have no sin but now ye say we see therefore your sin remaineth he immediately continued speaking to them 
and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the, the same is a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, and they know his voice. It says that four times in John chapter 10, that the sheep know his voice. Didn't the blind beggar know his voice? Yes. All right, verse 5, And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. And then John tells us in verse 6, This parable spake Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spake unto them. And I wanted to stop for a minute and just explain to you that the Greek word used for parable in verse 6 is not the normal Greek word which is used for parable some 50 times in the New Testament. The normal Greek word for parable is parabole. If you looked at it in Greek it, it even almost looks like the word parable in English. But this this word is paroimia. It's only found five times in the New Testament, and four of those times it is translated as proverb. Here, for some reason, it's translated as parable, but this, what the Lord says here, is not really like your normal parables, which usually are similes. For example, they use the words like or as. The uh, kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure found in a field. Most parables you'll find like or as. It's a simile. Um, they, it's, a, it's a simile that comes alongside of a teaching to help illustrate it. And remember, parables... Um, are usually understood by those who have spiritual ears to understand and not very well understood by those who don't have spiritual ears to understand them. So they do two things. They reveal and they conceal. Well, paroimia does the same thing. So I think maybe that's why they gave it the word parable. A paroimia also reveals and conceals, but a paroimia doesn't use a simile. It's more like an allegory. So it doesn't say, like he doesn't say, I am like unto a good shepherd, does he? He says, I am the good shepherd. So it's a little bit different. And um, it's, you know, you don't find any parables in John's gospel. Where, if you want to look at for the parables of Jesus, do you know what Gospels you go to? Primarily you go to Luke. Luke is full of parables. And the second most parabolic Gospel would be Matthew. But you don't go to John to find parables. So this isn't really your normal kind of parable. And that's why most Bible commentators don't call the Good Shepherd parable. They call it the Good Shepherd what? Sermon. It's really more of a sermon. But yet, it does reveal and conceal. And that's why the Pharisees listening to this and the other religious rulers didn't understand. Just like it tells us in verse 6. And yet, who do you think perfectly well understood what he was talking about? Who else was listening to him as he gave this sermon? 
I'm sure the once blind man was there and the Lord's disciples were there and don't you think that probably a lot of the Feast of Tabernacle pilgrims were still all I mean because they were everywhere so I'm sure there are a lot of other people that heard this sermon as well okay the first thing to notice is that once again the Lord what the Lord was about to say was very important and how do we know that how does he begin it Verily, verily, that means of a truth, of a truth. What I'm about to say is very important. This is one of 24 times in John's gospel that Jesus used this expression. Now, the ones to whom the Lord was directly speaking when he said, I say unto you, were who? Who had he just been talking to? Look back at verse 40 of chapter 9. The Pharisees. He's directly speaking. Now other people are hearing him, but he's directly speaking to the Pharisees who had just excommunicated the beggar after refusing to believe his testimony and reviling him with insults and then, you know, just treating him really badly and, and desynagoguing him. In defining for these men the terms thieves and robbers, Jesus said that they were those who did not enter into the sheep by the door as a true shepherd enters into the sheepfold a thief and a robber does not enter a sheepfold through the door how does a thief or a robber enter into the sheepfold what does it say it says some other way in verse 1 what well we'll talk about what some other way might be going over the wall or under the wall but a thief or a shepherd goes in some other way other than through the door into the sheepfold now of course who was he denouncing here i mean we i hope have ears to hear so we understand here he's denouncing the pharisees as false shepherds you know the old testament teaches that the leaders of Israel were given the responsibility to function as shepherds to the flock that God had entrusted to their care. Their responsibility was to lead the people of the nation in righteousness for whose sake? God's sake. You know, God is repeatedly referred to himself as um, the shepherd. Israel was privileged to be called the flock of God. It says in Psalm 79:13, "We thy people and the sheep and the sheep of thy pasture." A recurring theme throughout the Old Testament is of God being a caring shepherd of his people Israel, who are his sheep. Um, so the, the leaders were to care for the needs of the people. Particularly were they to care for their spiritual needs. But as we have been very clearly seeing over and over again through our Life of Christ study, the religious leaders by the time of the Lord Jesus had very little interest in the welfare of the sheep, did they? Did they really care about the common people? Not at all. I mean, they couldn't even get happy for that poor man who had laid, lain, laid, lain, whatever he did, there for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. <laughs> Sat there. <laughs> um, nor could they be happy for this poor blind beggar. I mean, they didn't care. They, they hated the Galileans. They looked down their long, pious noses at... Um, at any of the common people. They, they just didn't care. They were far more interested in their own welfare than for the welfare of the sheep. And this had been the case by and large, not only just at, by the, at the time of Christ, but if you go back and look at a lot of Old Testament passages, such as Jeremiah and in Ezekiel and other places, Zechariah, you'll see that God had the same problem. 
with the shepherds of Israel, that they were more interested in feeding themselves and in satisfying themselves and receiving the honor and praise of men than they were intending to their flocks. So they not only failed for the most part, now remember there's always exceptions, there were always good shepherds as well, but by and large, most of the shepherds, the spiritual shepherds of Israel by the time of, of Christ not only um, failed in their, in their responsibility as shepherds. I mean, they weren't just even inadequate shepherds and poor shepherds, you know, sorry shepherds, as you'd say here in the South. They had actually become evil shepherds, you know, false shepherds. So the Lord used two different words to describe them, to describe a false shepherd here in verse 1. First of all, he said that they were a thief, thieves, and then robbers. And the Greek word for thief is a word you all know. Who can guess? You know it. I know when I say it, you're going to know you know it. Klepto, kleptis. What word do we get from that? Yeah, all right, see, you did know it. (laughs) The Greek word for thief is kleptis, and it speaks of one who steals by cunning stealth, one who is a deceiver, a seducer, a crafty, and a dishonest person who has a persistent desire to steal, to take from others what is not his. The scribes and the Pharisees were determined to steal the affection and the praise and the honor and the glory of the people away from God. And uh, I know they would never admit to that, but really they were. They loved the praise of men. And, of course, to take it away from God's Son. And as a result, they succeeded in diverting the nation of Israel away from receiving her long-awaited Messiah and his promised kingdom. Who really is to blame for the fact that Israel rejected her Messiah and doesn't have the kingdom? And, and, you know, has, has had to wait all these many years and suffer all that she has suffered. Her religious rulers, her false shepherds are to blame. Because if they had accepted Christ, the sheep would have followed. And they too would have accepted. They were more ready to accept him than their leaders. But because their leaders didn't accept him, neither did they. Later on in his ministry, when we finally get over to Matthew 23, which who knows when that will be, The rapture may happen before that, but if we do get there one day, we're going to see that the Lord indicted these sheep stealers with these words. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, but, this is even worse, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. It's one thing to prevent yourself from going into the kingdom, but to keep others from going in is even worse, far worse, isn't it? He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. You know, they take advantage, took advantage of, of poor gullible widows, took their money, you know, had them sign over their wills to them. Do we have false shepherds people doing that today? Oh, yes, yes. He said, and for a pretense, make long prayer. They'd have these long, verbose prayers so that everybody would say, you know, oh, you're so spiritual, you're so pious, and give them all the praise. Jesus said, therefore shall ye receive the greater damnation. Jesus pronounced severe judgment upon these false shepherds because they blocked the way to heaven, not only for themselves, but for so many. Think of how many Jewish people over the centuries have not gained heaven because of these false shepherds. 
it's really a tragedy. So the word thief is kleptes. Now the word he used in Greek for robber is listes, and that one you wouldn't know, but it refers to one who uses violence and cruelty and will even destroy and devour if necessary in order to take something that does not belong to him. And it's interesting to find that these same two Greek words that Jesus used of false shepherds, and he's really speaking to the Pharisees here, are two words used to describe two of the most sinful men in the New Testament. Judas Iscariot was referred to as a kleptes, a thief. Was he a wicked, evil, evil deceiver? Judas was called a kleptes, and Barabbas was called a listes, a robber. Now, who was Barabbas? He was the one that people said, you know, on the on Passover, they could the people could vote for one prisoner to be released from having to be crucified, and they said, instead of giving us Jesus, give us Barabbas, who was a murderer and a listes. He was a robber. So you see the Lord was putting the religious rulers of Israel on the same sin level with these very sinful men. So what does that tell us? It tells us that nothing is so offensive to the Lord Jesus Christ as false teachers, false shepherds, false apostles. You know, don't think that it's, uh, that it's wrong to speak harsh words against false Ministers, or whatever you might want to call them. Jesus spoke his most harsh words of all to them and about them, which teaches us that there definitely are times when it is right to speak with such sharp rebuke, to flatter and to compliment all spiritual, you know, those who look like they're spiritual teachers and pastors or ministers, reverends, um, whatever else they might call themselves, rabbis, mullahs, um, priests, to fathers, yeah, to, to, to um, flatter and compliment them or to look up to them even and praise them just because they have that title or just because they may be very zealous or earnest or eloquent or even gentle and kind-hearted and people kind of people, you know? People, what do you call them? People, people? No. They're like people, they're good with people. To do all that is not according to Scripture. Just listen to some of the words God had to say to false shepherds. Because you know, not everyone, you know, even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, right? But God spoke very, not only God the Son, but God the Father. Here's what God the Father said in Jeremiah 23, 1 and 2. He said, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Ye have scattered my flock and driven them away. And isn't that what happened? You know, when, when Israel, um, first of all, when she, she rebelled against God, he scattered her to Babylonia. And then when she, she rejected his son, he scattered her to the four corners of the earth. And that's because the false shepherds, they were responsible for that scattering. God says, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. And then I don't have time to get into it, but a long passage is Ezekiel 34, verses 1 to 10 if you want to hear God speaking through his prophet very harshly about the false shepherds of Israel and then there's Isaiah 56 verses 9 to 11 where God called the false shepherds of Israel devouring beasts 
He called them blind watchmen. They were supposed to be watching to protect their flock, but they were blind, just like Jesus said they were. He called them, this is pretty cruel, ignorant, dumb, greedy dogs who couldn't bark and who loved to slumber. They were also lazy. They were worthless watchdogs and they were lazy. And he said they never have enough for themselves. They just keep, you know, laying up their own treasure. They could never get enough. He said that they selfishly looked to their own way and to their own gain. He said that they were shepherds who could not understand. That's back in Isaiah 56. So we see by the time of the Lord, nothing had changed. John the Baptist called them what? You brood of vipers. Paul, among other things, Paul called them deceitful workers. Peter called them um, ravening wolves and wells without water. Jude called them clouds without water. You see, a cloud without water is no good, is it? We've had some in this long drought that we've had. We've had clouds that passed over, but, you know, without any water, they haven't really benefited us at all. He called them, Jude called them trees whose fruit withers. He said they were twice dead. He called them raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And those are just some of the things said about false shepherds, false teachers, false apostles in the, in, the, in the scripture. What does that tell us? Be very, very careful whose ministries you sit under, ladies. Be very, very careful who you listen to on radio or television or wherever. Be very careful about whose books you, reads, you read. Because in the latter days, there are even more false shepherds than there ever have been before. So the spiritual leaders of Israel had become thieves and robbers. They were cunning men who often got their positions, not by way of the doorkeeper, but through unlawful means. Many of them bought their positions. Uh, many of them used bribery and wealth to gain their positions. They were thieves in that they seized positions that they had no right to hold. And they exerted an authority over the people that did not justly belong to them. You, know, you Think about the, um, the blind man's parents. How fearful those parents were of the religious rulers. Should a sheep be that fearful of his shepherd? No. The sheep love the shepherd. The shepherd is the one that takes care of them. So everything was upside down. All right, let's talk now about sheepfolds. I know here in America, we are probably not as familiar with sheepfolds as the people Jesus was talking to would have been because they were just part of their culture. Um, back in in that day, and I guess probably even in Israel today or the Middle East, there are a lot of shepherds and sheepfolds. So they would be very familiar with what he's talking about, with a sheepfold and a door and a doorkeeper and all that kind of stuff. But you and I may not be quite so familiar with it. So, um, and I <laughs> have to share this with you. Um, I could be a shepherdess today if my grandmother had not moved over from the old country because my father's mother my my paternal grandmother was a shepherdess in Greece 
And um, when she was 18 years old, I don't know how she did it, but she got up and left and came to America. And I'm so thankful because I did go to see where she lived. And it is in the back hill country of Greece in the middle of nowhere. I took a train. I was by myself. I talk about I can't believe I did this. I was only 21 years old, and I took a train by myself to the middle of nowhere, (laughs) got off the train, and had to walk for miles and miles. And the only person I passed was a man on a donkey. And finally got up, and I have a picture of it to show you. You just can't believe where my grandmother lived in this little mud hut with 10 brothers and sisters and her parents. I mean, it's, it's probably about, it was about as big as this stage. If No, it wasn't even as big as this stage. But she was, they were all in the sh- sheep business, and she was a shepherdess. And um, really interesting. I am just so thankful. But then I got to thinking, well, it wouldn't be so bad to have been a shepherdess because there were so many good shepherds. You know, we, we, I just painted a picture like there were so many bad shepherds in the Old Testament. But think of all the good ones there were who were pictures of the coming good shepherd. We have, for example, starting with Abel. He was a shepherd, and he was a good shepherd. And then there was um, all the patriarchs were shepherds. Abraham had his his um, flocks and his herds and sheep and goats and all that kind of thing. And Isaac and Jacob was an excellent. He got to really be a good shepherd. And then there was... Um, oh, yeah, we can't forget David. David was... a wonderful shepherd. I mean, he he would have given his life for his sheep because he even killed a lion and a bear. And then there was uh, one other, Moses. Wasn't Moses? You talk about having problems with your sheep. Can you imagine a shepherd having more problems with his sheep than Moses? I'm talking about his human sheep. <laughs> he probably didn't have nearly as many problems with his real sheep. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk a minute about sheepfolds. Sheepfolds were walled enclosures that were built of either stone, and there were plenty of stones back in in Israel that they could gather together and build sheepfolds out of stone or thorny hedges. The enclosure became a place of refuge and protection for the flock in times of danger from prey. Now, what kind of prey did they have in in the Mideast back then? Yes, the main one you think of it would be wolves. And also, what did David kill? Lions and bears. You know, we're getting more and more bears in Moore County. Have you had the prop? People living behind us in the woods just saw a bear. Young boy was up in a tree. uh, You know, what do they call those? Deer hunting. He was waiting in the morning. And a bear came and, and started climbing up the tree. And the, the little 12-year-old boy took it out his cell phone and took a picture of it. <laughs> I don't think I would have had <laughs> And then he, he texted his father, who was in another tree f- further away and didn't know what was going on. He texted his father one word, bear, except the little boy spelled it wrong. And he spelled B-A-R-E. And his father got it. He thought, what is he doing naked up in the tree stand? <laughs> But anyway, they had they had a problem with bears um, and also lions, mountain lions, and even real lions. So those were their their main. And then there were those humans who would even try to steal sheep from one flock to put into theirs. So the the sheepfold was a place of refuge and protection from not only the sheep's enemies but also from bad weather. And it was a place of rest for the sheep at night. Now, in Israel at that time, there were two kinds of sheepfold. 
There were village sheepfolds and there were country sheepfolds. The village sheepfolds were much larger than the country sheepfolds. Now, in a village sheepfold, the shepherds would build the wall to be 10 to 12 feet high. You know, they'd gather stones and build them up to be 10. That's pretty high. Now, sheep can sheep are really pretty dumb. I think they're about one of the dumbest animals there are. Not very flattering that God calls us sheep. But you got to admit, we are pretty dumb. <laughs> anyway, sheep can't jump over a very high wall at all. But they would make the walls of the village sheepfolds 10 to 12 feet high so that wolves and lions couldn't jump over them, um, or at least make it more difficult for them. And they were, a village sheepfold was the joint property, the common property of all the local village shepherds. The village sheepfold was where every shepherd led his flock for the night if his flock was grazing within easy walking distance of, of, the, of the village, that shepherd's village. When the shepherd would bring his flock from the field to the local sheepfold near his village, he would lead his sheep through the door. Now, a, a um, village sheepfold would have a real door on it a wooden door or an iron gate. So the shepherd would lead his sheep through the door and into its protective high walls, the high walls of the sheepfold. And when all of his sheep were safely inside, the shepherd entrusted his flock to the care and the protection of who? The porter or the doorkeeper. You can see that in John 10.3. And then that shepherd would go home and spend the night with his family. Once all of the flocks of the village sheep herders were brought into the village sheepfold by their respective shepherds, then the door of the sheepfold was locked, was shut and locked by the porter or the doorkeeper who would then guard the sheepfold all night long until the shepherds returned in the morning for their respective flocks. And the porter, as each shepherd would come to him in the morning, would he know the the different shepherds of his village? Of course, he knew them. And so when he would see a legitimate shepherd, he would open the door and permit each shepherd to have access into the sheepfold, where the shepherd would then call each one of his sheep by name. And knowing the voice of their particular shepherd, the sheep would follow him out of the fold to the pasture he would lead them to for that particular day. Now, the porter, of course, would not let any stranger into the sheepfold. If a stranger, therefore, was going to get into the sheepfold, he had to get in, as we said, some other way. And the only, Now, the sheepfolds were open to the sky. They didn't have a roof over them. Maybe there were exceptions, but most of them were open to the sky. So what would some other way be? Well, the only ways I can imagine is that if it was a big bird of prey or something, I can't imagine any bird big enough to carry off a sheep. I guess they could carry off a little lamb. But anyway, they'd either have to come in from above or they'd have to jump over the wall or they'd have to dig under the wall, right? So only other ways into the sheepfold, unless they killed the porter and went in that way. All right, now the country sheepfolds were different from the village sheepfolds. When a shepherd took his sheep off to some green pasture that was too far from the village to return to at night, the shepherd would construct some kind of a sheepfold of his own making out there in the field. You know, he'd, he'd maybe walk around, pick up a bunch of uh, large rocks and put them together in a big circle. 
Or maybe he'd find a bunch of thorny bushes and put them together in a, in a big circle. And then he would leave an opening for the door because he didn't have a door out there. You know, He didn't make a, a wooden door or an iron door. And he himself would lie in the space where the door was. And so therefore, there's no contradiction when Jesus says in this sermon, I am the good shepherd, and then also says, I am the door. Because in the country sheepfold situation, the shepherd was the door. Now, a country sheepfold is what we read about in Luke 2.8. Some of you, will, I hope, will be sharing, I hope all of you will be sharing the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2 with your families this Christmas. You know, on the night of the Lord's birth, we are told that the shepherds were abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. That speaks of a country sheepfold. All right, now it is also important to understand in trying to interpret this um, sermon that there are three different doors mentioned in this sermon. Not just one door, there are three doors. Number one, in verse one, there is the door into the sheepfold. That speaking of the door of a village sheepfold where the porter, you know, had... He was the one responsible to keep the door. He was the doorkeeper, the door into the sheepfold. And then there is the door of the sheep. That's not the same as the door of the sheepfold. There's the door of the sheep, and that's in verse 7. And we don't have to worry about interpreting that door because the Lord himself tells us who that door is. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And third door is the door of salvation, which is found in verse 9. And again... We have no problem interpreting what that door is because the Lord tells us it again is himself. He says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So Jesus is the door of the sheep and he is the door of salvation. We will have to speak about what is the first door, the door into the sheepfold. So keep those different doors in mind. Also to rightly interpret the Good Shepherd Sermon, it is important to understand what the sheepfold represents. And this is probably where more commentators have had problems in the past. I don't think most have a problem today. But, you know, as, as commentators grow in their understanding, they come along. If you go back 100 years, most of the commentators said that the sheepfold was either heaven that it represented heaven. Now remember in a parable or a paroimia, you can't take things too, you know, you can't stretch things too far. So some of this might not totally perfectly fit in every little aspect, but we want to get a general gist of what the Lord is teaching here. But back a hundred years or so, most great good Bible teachers said that the sheepfold here represented heaven, or some said that it represented the church. But remember, I don't know how they missed this, but we know that the true shepherd, the good shepherd who enters through the door into this sheepfold the right way, which is through the porter, you know, the porter opens the door to him. What does he do? He comes into the sheepfold to take his sheep out, to call them by name, and to call them out of the sheepfold. The Lord Jesus certainly did not come to earth to take his sheep out of the church, much less to take them out of heaven, right? Neither can it be said that thieves and robbers climb up into the church or into heaven some other way. There aren't, there aren't going to be any thieves and robbers in heaven. 
to steal away and destroy the sheep. There is no other way into the church or into heaven except by Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. And in the latter half of John 10, he assures believers how secure we are in his hand and in his father's hand. Just look at verses 28 and 29 so that we can never be plucked out. We can never perish. We can never be stolen by any kind of a thief or a robber. The true sheep have have total security. They don't need to be worried about somebody stealing them. Still, a further reason for why the sheepfold cannot symbolize the church is because the Pharisees to whom Jesus is directly speaking would know absolutely nothing about the church. They wouldn't have, I mean, you know, then we could say, well, no wonder they didn't understand. Even the Lord's disciples, even though he'd already spoken the word church to them back in Matthew 16, still had no idea what the church was. It was still utterly a mystery to them. So what is the sheepfold? Well, the only possible answer is that the sheepfold represents the house of Israel under Judaism. Put at the top of your Bibles there, sheepfold equals Israel slash Judaism. Judaism was the religious system in which God's Jewish sheep were kept until the good shepherd, the Messiah, would come and lead them out. Now this is made very clear to us if you look ahead at verse 16. Look ahead, take a sneak preview at what Jesus says in verse 16. He says there that he has other sheep which are not of this fold. This fold, this fold, what fold? This sheepfold. He has other sheep. That's speaking of a Gentile sheep that he's going to add to this fold, the Jewish sheep, to make what? One fold, one flock over which he will be the good shepherd. The other sheep that he was speaking of there are Gentile believers. I actually had a minister one time tell me that that was a passage that spoke of the fact that there are other there are aliens, there are other people on other planets. Have you ever heard that? Mm. No, that doesn't make any sense. The other sheep are the Gentile sheep. Um, and they would eventually be all together, Jew and Gentile, one, one flock. Um, but the sheepfold he spoke of in the first ten or the first verses of John ten was the sheepfold made up exclusively of Jewish sheep. Remember when he sent out his disciples on their first mission venture without him in pairs, and he told them to go only, you know, at first go only unto the sheep, the the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So the sheepfold represents Israel, the house of Israel, or Judaism, or both together. Now, Now, the Lord went on to say that the true shepherd of the sheep, in contrast to the false shepherds, um, is he that entereth by the door. Now, remember, I just told you there are three doors in this sermon, and this door of verse 2 is the door into the sheepfold. So what does, we're not told by Jesus what this door represents, like we are of the other two doors. What does this first door represent? The shepherd entered into the sheepfold, the house of Israel, by the door. Well, the door is the divinely appointed proper entrance into the sheepfold. Jesus of Nazareth, you see, you could say door equals messianic credentials if you want to make it a little easier. Jesus of Nazareth 
Nazareth was and always will be the one and only person to claim to be the Christ, the promised shepherd of Israel who came by the legitimate means of entry. The lawful means. He is the only one who met all the messianic credentials. You know, all who ever came before him and all who have ever come after him and will continue to come were nothing but thieves and robbers. None of them who claim to be the Christ. I'm not talking about all shepherds that came before him or after him. Uh, were thieves and robbers because as we've said there have been many good shepherds and many true you know pastors and ministers of the gospel but all who claim to be the Christ other than Jesus are thieves and robbers and that's exactly what he tells us in verse 8 look at verse 8 all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers but the sheep the true sheep did not hear them did Jesus Christ come through the door into the sheepfold of Israel. Absolutely. Was he born of a virgin? Yes. As scripture said, yes. Did he come from the line of Abraham? Yes. Did he come through the tribe of Judah? Yes. Did he come from the bloodline of King David? Yes. Did he come from the royal line of David? Yes. Was he born in Bethlehem, Ephrata? Absolutely. Was he called a Nazarene, as it said in Isaiah 11.1? 1? Yes, even though he was born in Bethlehem, he was also called a Nazarene. And God said he would call his son out of Egypt. Did Jesus come out of Egypt? Yes, that's interesting too. Hosea 11.1. 1. I can't even imagine one other professing Christ to even meet those few credentials. Can you? much less all the rest of them, did he have a forerunner who pronounced him in the power and spirit of Elijah? Yes, John the Baptist. Did he appear suddenly in the temple and um, have a zeal for his father's house? Yes, he did. Did he demonstrate power over nature? Absolutely. Remember when he turned water into wine? Remember when he stilled the, the stormy seas? Remember when he made caused fish to jump into nets and put a particular um, tax coin in a fish's mouth? Did he heal the sick? Yes, over and over again. Did he cleanse the lepers? Yes, he did. Did he give limbs to the maimed? He even could do that. And what about giving sight to the blind, which no one had ever done? Yes, he did that. He demonstrated absolute power and authority also over Satan's realm. And uh, he even provoked the rage of his enemies when he was born. You know, the um, the Bethlehem massacre had been predicted in the Old Testament by Herod the Great. Remember when all the two-year-olds and under, the males were killed. And these are just some of the messianic credentials of Jesus that he and he alone met. He alone is the true scriptural shepherd who entered into the sheepfold the right way, through the door. Uh, he, he arrived at the right time, at the right place, from the right lineage, by the right sign. What was his sign? Would the wise men follow? The star out of Jacob. He displayed all the right miracles. He um, fulfilled all the right prophecies and even all the types, the pictures of him in the Old Testament. He displayed the right power and he lived the right life, which was what? Totally sinless. And he spoke. Every word he spoke was perfect. The right words. And it was to the true shepherd 
that the porter, the doorkeeper, opened the door. The doorkeeper was the one who I had to identify the shepherd and then present him to his sheep. And who did that? Who was the door? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the accredited forerunner of the Christ. He was the one who announced Jesus' coming and then validated his credentials and formally introduced the good shepherd to Israel. Except it's really rather funny, strange, ironic that when John the Baptist introduced the good shepherd to Israel, how did he announce him? As the lamb. He's not only the good shepherd who would lay down his life for the sheep, but he was the lamb of sacrifice, the lamb which cometh to take away the sins of the world. The shepherd was not only the door, the shepherd was the lamb. But on an even wider application, we could say, and we should say, that the door represents God the Holy Spirit, because God the Holy Spirit is the one who officially vouched for the credentials of Christ and who presented and who continues to present him to his true sheep. Who introduced you to the Good Shepherd? The Holy Spirit. The tragic truth about the Jewish teachers of the law at the time of Christ is that there was no door in their ministry. The Holy Spirit did not anoint anything they did with his blessings. Well, a second proof that Christ was who he claimed to be, the good shepherd. And by the way, every time in the Greek it says that he is the good shepherd, where he said we haven't gotten to that, but when he does say, next week we'll look at when he says, I am the good shepherd, in the Greek it is literally, I am the shepherd, the good which is an emphasis on the fact that he is, you know, elsewhere he's called the great shepherd. And he's also called the chief shepherd. Those are the three roles of Christ in his shepherding role. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. That's past tense. That's when he's the good shepherd. That speaks about when he died for us. And that's given to us, you can read about it in Psalm 22. The uh, great shepherd... um, is present tense. Jesus now is functioning as our great shepherd, our great high priest in heaven. And you can read about that in Psalm 23. You all know Psalm 23, right? And you think of it as the good shepherd, but really it's a description of Christ in his role today to the church as the great shepherd. He is our great high priest. And one day he will be the chief shepherd when he rules over you know, the world literally in the millennial kingdom as king of kings and chief shepherd over all shepherds, lord of lords. And that is given, a description of that role is given to us in Psalm 24. It's really interesting. Psalm 22, the good shepherd, past tense, died for the sheep. Psalm 23, his present role, the great shepherd. Psalm 24, the chief shepherd when he shall reign as king of kings. That was free. I don't think I had that in your notes. (laughs) All right, well, second proof that he was who he claimed to be is that um, when the doorkeeper opened the door and he, and he went in, the sheep listened to his voice and were will- they knew his voice and they were willing to follow him. You see, there has always been a remnant of Israel, those Jewish individuals who, when they heard the voice of the true shepherd, willingly followed him out. Isn't that true? Who were some of the sheep that heard his voice and followed him? 
Well, we had Andrew and John and Peter and James and Philip and Nathaniel and uh, Levi, who became Matthew. Uh, We had uh, Zacchaeus. Remember that little tax collector up in the sycamore tree? And Jesus comes along and says, Zacchaeus? That little sheep knew his voice and followed, came down from the tree and followed the shepherd, didn't he? Um, and, of course, we have the, the, uh, the man born blind. He had never seen the face of Jesus, but when he heard his voice, he recognized it and he followed him. Do you know that um, <clears throat> it is said to be a fact that back in that day, I don't know if this is tr- still true today, maybe it is, that the shepherds actually knew each of their sheep Individually, They knew every little flaw and detail about them. Um, and even in large herds, they named them. So you had Sam the ram, you had Baba black sheep, you had little fleecy weesy over here. <laughs> but he named each and every one of his sheep. And before they would pass into the sheepfold, you know, a shepherd carried two pieces of equipment. He had a staff... And a rod. Now the staff was to beat off the enemies, the wolves. He would use his staff to beat the wolves and, and the, the lions and all that. But the rod, interestingly, and this is given back in the Old Testament somewhere. I don't know if it's in Ezekiel. But he would put the rod down before, before each sheep would enter into the door of the sheepfold. He'd put his rod down, kind of like a turnstile. One sheep could only go in at a time. And before he'd let that sheep in, he would inspect the sheep. He'd look him over to see if he had any little owies and scratches and boo-boos or whatever you call them. You know, and he'd, he'd look him over and he'd, he'd talk to him. He'd talk to him while he, or her. You know, how, did, how was your day today, Molly? Or fleecy-weecy, did you have? And he intimately knew each one of his sheep. And then after he had inspected that sheep, he'd, re, he'd lift up the rod and then that sheep would go in and he'd put it down before the next sheep. Isn't it wonderful to know that our good shepherd cares so intimately about us that he knows even our names? Of course he knows our names. He knows how many hairs we have on our head every moment of every day. And we're constantly losing hairs, aren't we? And growing new ones. And yet he knows and has them numbered. The good shepherd knows each of his sheep by name. And the sheep know his voice. I love that. The blind beggar, as I said, was one such sheep who knew the voice of the true shepherd and was drawn to him, whereas, you know, that blind beggar refused to listen to the voices of the strangers, the false shepherds, even when they were interrogating and trying to get him to listen to them, he he did not do so. You see, the Pharisees had figured that they had cut off that man, the blind beggar, from the place of safety, the sheepfold of Judaism. But the Lord had shown the man that it was only then that he could really enter into the true place of safety and blessing. He was, you know, once he was out of Judaism, he was in the genuine care of the true shepherd, who instead of caring absolutely nothing for him and wanting to simply use him for his own selfish purposes and devour and destroy him, was going to instead die for him. The good shepherd was going to die for that blind beggar. And that's why he could be saved. That's why he could enter into his kingdom. The false shepherds may have callously cast the man out, but Jesus was really leading him out. See, it looked like they were casting him out, didn't it? 
but it was really who was behind the scenes, who was sovereignly in control. The good shepherd was really leading that man out. He was using his enemies for his own special purposes. Well, I just want to show you this real quickly, and then we'll try to wrap this up. But I want you, if you will please flip over real quickly to Exodus 33. This isn't in your books because it's something I just saw this last week while I was studying. But in Exodus 33, we have an amazing illustration of, um, of what we've been talking about with a village sheepfold. This, this chapter takes place right after... the golden calf situation you know when Israel when Moses went up to receive uh, the law of God on Mount Sinai and he was gone too long the people got impatient and they built themselves a golden calf they were in a you know state of rebellion against God and unbelief and Moses came down and of course he was just his anger waxed hot He was hot to trot. He threw down the tablets, the the stone tablets. And anyway, we are told in verse, in chapter 33, in verse 7, that Moses, who was the shepherd of Israel, so he pictured in type the Lord Jesus. You know, he Moses was a picture of Jesus as a shepherd. He was also a picture of Jesus as a deliverer, and he was also a picture of Jesus as a prophet. Okay, but here he's a picture of Jesus as a shepherd. It says in verse 7 that Moses took the tabernacle. That was where they'd go to worship God. He took the tabernacle and he pitched it without the camp. He took it away off. It says afar off from the camp. And he called it the tabernacle of the what? The tabernacle of the congregation. So he took the, he was so mad, he took their tabernacle. And he carried it out far away from the camp of Israel, and he pitched it in a new place afar off, and he called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it says, And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp, outside the camp. In other words, those Jews, those of Israel who really had a heart to seek the Lord, that wanted to live for the Lord, what did they have to do? They had to leave the camp of Israel and go forth with the shepherd, Moses, to the outside. And notice the sequel of all this in verse 9. It says, And it came to pass as Moses entered the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar, what's that? The Shekinah glory of God descended and stood where? At the door of the tabernacle. You see, the Lord God, the Shekinah glory, actually became the door into the tabernacle. And we know that was the cloudy pillar was the Lord because it says, and the Lord talked with Moses. You see, um, not all Israel was true Israel. Isn't that what Jesus had been telling these um, scribes and Pharisees? You know, they called themselves the sons of the children of Abraham, but not all the physical descendants of Abraham were spiritual 
children of Abraham. Not all Israel was true Israel. All those who really wanted to follow the Lord had to leave the camp of Israel and go with the good shepherd and go through the door of the Lord into the tabernacle to worship the true Lord. And I believe that all of that is a picture of what we have here. It's like with the blind beggar. He had to first leave Judaism and then follow the good shepherd into through the door. And Jesus is the door, not only the good shepherd, to go into the church. So I wouldn't be surprised if the tabernacle of the congregation was really sort of a little bit of a clue of the one day coming church. You know, all those Jews who originally followed Jesus, who heard his voice, such as Andrew and James and John and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and Zacchaeus and and Mary Magdalene and all the rest of them, they had to be willing to be sort of ostracized from Israel, right? Because the scribes and Pharisees looked down on anyone who followed Jesus. They even said anyone who did follow him would be desynagogued, just like the blind beggar. So here in... in, um, In Exodus 33, I think we have a beautiful picture of that, and I was just excited to share that with you. Well, verse 6 tells us, again, that those who are not the true sheep are unable to understand the truth, even when it is plainly spoken to them. These Pharisees were truly spiritually blind because they were totally incapacitated to understand what Jesus was saying here. You see, it doesn't matter how well-educated a person might be. It doesn't matter how many degrees they might have behind their name. It doesn't matter how theologically trained they might be. Unless they are born again by the Spirit of the living God, this book remains to them a sealed book, doesn't it? So if you have those out there who don't know the Lord, what you need to do is pray that the Holy Spirit, the doorkeeper, would open the book to them because he's the only one who can.